Hello, I'm Leah Bannon, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power that technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. I'm guest hosting today because I organized a Q&A with a group of friends, including Maya Wagoner and Georgia Bullen, authors of the More Than Code Report, which is awesome. You can find it at morethancode.cc report. And I strongly recommend you check it out. When I first read it, I was yelling and cheering the whole way through because it felt like they addressed so many issues or concerns I wonder about in this work with hundreds of interviews with folks in our space. We talked about why user research isn't enough, why civic tech and public interest tech are maybe not the best terms you want to use, and why there are no innovation shortcuts to justice and equity work. So in this recording, they'll introduce themselves and then answer some great questions from the group. Very excited to have Georgia and Maya here today um, to talk to us about the More Than Code report, which came out two years ago, and I should have read and promoted more back then as well, but here we are. Um, And I've been slowly badgering everyone to read it, so I wanted um, to have a session to chat and um, learn more and try to get as many people to read it as possible. So um, Maya and Georgia, can you start by introducing yourselves? Well, hi everybody, my name is Maya. Uh, I was, yeah, so I started working on this report a couple of years ago while I was um, working with, I started as Georgia's intern at the Open Technology Institute um, and uh, before that, I was one of the organizers of the Code for San Francisco Brigade um, and just was really interested, did a lot of the interviews for this and ended up interviewing like 60 people, just myself. Um, and yeah, since then, I've, uh, I had a Ford Mozilla Open Web Fellowship at the Brooklyn Public Library and now I work as a UX designer there. And yeah, I'm excited to be here to talk more about this. Um, I think we learned so much from talking to like an extremely diverse group of people who are working with technology for social justice or equity or whatever people want to call it. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to share. Um, And I'm Georgia Bullen. I was at New America at the Open Technology Institute working with Maya on <laughs> this report, uh, which actually the whole project took about two years um, to do. So it was came out two years ago and we started on it four years ago, which is kind of insane, um, more or less. Like uh, I'd have to look up the exact timing to be sure. <clears throat> but um, I've since left New America and I'm now, I now run an, a nonprofit called Simply Secure. We do um, usability and design work with a focus on security and privacy. So we work a lot in the internet freedom and human rights space. Um, uh, so that is where I am now. But um, uh, I would actually say a lot of that shift and move and actually return to, because my, my background was in UX and human center design um, prior to working in a think tank and a policy <laughs> institution. Um, so I returning to that was somewhat driven actually by the work like doing this work over two years helped me kind of recenter and see how and where I wanted to be doing that work and as part of why part of what led me to return back to those roots and sort of reprioritize how I was working. Yeah, I'll get started with a couple of questions and then if you all want to ask a question, um, please feel free to post in the um, your post your question in the 
this channel and I'll try to get to everyone. Um, I think to me, the recommendations were the most interesting part. I, <laughs> I, um, I think like, I'm glad you just talked about um, user-centered design and co-design because I thought that, I think that like this group that I've pulled together is roughly united by support for user-centered design and generally working towards democracy and justice and equity in this space. And, um, you know, not as their full-time job, but definitely a supporter. And um, I, I, I guess, I think, you know, you even called out 18F and USDS as good examples of um, success at the federal level. But I also think that we do a lot of just user-centered design and not co-design or, or, you know, maybe even a little parachuting, which you recommended against. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difference between, you know, um, a design process that involves users from the beginning and, and does talk to them and, and collaborates with another government office, but maybe isn't necessarily reaching the level of co-design and what that kind of means. Yeah, I guess I would see it as just a difference of power and who's running the show or making the decisions. I know that in a lot of traditional user research, a lot of times you're like building a product and you want to find out who your customers are and sort of take their knowledge and <laughs> how they live their lives and then use that to sell something back to them. But there's also, I think, a way that might be more complicated or might have, you might have to shift your practice a little bit to bring people in as deciders that bring their own values to the work or even find out like what work people are already doing on the ground and what they need versus coming in with a solution and then getting feedback on that from people. Um, so anything that can be coming out of work that people are already doing or that there's the right of refusal where if you're working with a community and they can say, no, this would actually be harmful. Just agreeing to be like, okay, it's over. We're out. Like, <laughs> we're not going to do it. We're not going to release it. Um, so I would say that's how I kind of understand the difference. Um, as well as like the gate, like gatekeeping, the skill sets, you know, like you might be involved with something as a, you know, UX designer, engineer, making a ton of money or like prestige off of it or getting to speak to conferences or getting access to a lot more opportunities. Whereas the people who you're kind of like harvesting their <laughs> knowledge and life experience from get none of that like being transparent about who's benefiting and passing some of that along, I would say. I don't know, Georgia, what do you think? No, yeah, I think, I mean, part of what I'm curious to hear more about is, um, Leah, you framed it as like just doing user-centered design or like, I, and I think my question there is like, what does that mean? Or like, we're not doing it every day. And it's like, well, no one is every day like yeah. running a work, some people maybe for a month and then they're exhausted, like running a workshop every day with the people <laughs> they're working with. So I think, um, I, I think what we're talking about doesn't mean understanding that working in government is always going to come with a certain amount of bureaucracy. And some of what you're doing there is actually figuring out how to navigate that bureaucracy and like figure out where you have opportunities to bring community in. Right. And if that's sort of the lens that you're, like if that's part of what you're doing every day, like that doesn't mean you're not doing human centered design or you're not also doing co-design, right? I think the question is like Maya's talking about like 
when it comes to decision making, when it comes to problem identification, when it comes to like solutions and ideas, like how are you involving the people impacted by the work? Are they um, just testing the thing? Are they like informing <laughs> the features and the design? Like how much of that is there and how much, um, what are ways that you could actually engage them in that prioritization or decision making or like process as a whole? Um, I do think it's important. Uh, I think sometimes we undervalue the work of that like navigation and bureaucracy like that is that's really important work and it's actually kind of it's good for people to know like that's also stuff that should be recognized as part of the work of that process because the systems you're interacting with need to figure out how to evolve to make that possible right so i don't know i wouldn't undervalue that i would just also it's a question of like what are ways that you can go a step further in how you're identifying and defining problems in a way that you could work more closely with the community rather than saying like, Oh, you know, where here's a solution we've already come up with and we need you to test it. Right. Like, can you take that further um, to where the community is helping define the problem? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a great framing on like how much power does do the people have as well that you're collaborating with or just extracting <laughs> knowledge from. I think, I mean, one thing just to add on this before we jump to your next question, like in a lot of the projects that I see in more the strict, like where more commonly civic tech is the a term that's used. A lot of times what we're doing is trying to take a paper driven process and make it like more efficient or more technologically powered, whatnot, right? Whatever that means. Like we're trying to solve for some efficiency problem and I'm using <laughs> air quotes here. Um, I remember having a conversation with the folks working on the, um, Oh God, the like food stamps project at Code for America. And I, we were talking through it and they were like, oh, you know, we worked on making the project, the system better and better and much easier for people to apply for food stamps. Like, but then we realized that the problem is the policy of who gets access to food stamps. And I was like, yeah, it's like the technology doesn't solve that problem, right? Like that was a, the revelation for them was like, the poverty definition sucks. And so the poverty definition does not reflect like who's eligible, who should be eligible for food stamps. Like you can't efficiency, efficiency out that problem. <laughs> like, but if you were talking to like in talking to people and understanding what their lives are actually like, you know, how that plays out and how that impacts people. I remember when I realized that um, folks are only eligible for like low cost internet if they are um, fall into the definition of poverty and therefore on programs like have access to programs like food stamps. But if you're say, a grandparent raising your grandkid because the parents aren't around and so you're an intergenerational household, that that doesn't make you eligible for things like that. And it's like, those are policy things that need to change that we need to understand about the way people's lives actually are, right? And it's like, how can we, how can we actually have that conversation and solve the problem? But like the technology process being more efficient, is it gonna make it more, like that's not gonna make it co-design it more better, if that makes sense. Like, how do you change the policy conversation too? Did want to uh, go to Amy real quick, because I thought Amy raised a really good question um, that I wanted to talk about as well. Yeah, so the question is gender identity demographics. Did, this, the, did the question require a single answer, that one? Yeah. And people potentially, um, yeah, I think people could choose all of the terms they identify with. Maya, do you remember? 
I think we left it as open and people could also self-define. We were pretty, um, we tried to make that as like people could define and that way um, we could most easily support that. So people could choose multiple terms. Um, I think the next question we had is coming from Ryan. Yeah, I had a question. Uh, one of the recommendations that stuck out to me was the one that reads, develop and adhere to spe specific concrete mechanisms for community accountability. And I was curious to hear your perspectives on what makes for like quote unquote good systems design for this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think if you have, a, I don't know, if you have a co-design process and you are sort of starting with the goals that the people in your community you're working with set out, then that's always, I think, the best place to start. Um, but yeah, George, I don't know, Georgia, do you have? Yeah, I was, I, I would say to me, this is about governance, right? So um, again, thinking through and even just like, I think a lot of people struggle when you start talking about things like governance or accountability structures, because everyone wants it to be perfect. And it actually is probably good to just start with like, what is it? Like, let's make it not implicit, right? Like, that's a great place to start. So um, we work with a lot of day-to-day -day now, I work with a lot of open source projects. And this is something that comes up a lot when it's sort of like, who actually gets to make decisions about what changes are made in the software? Um, do we consider users contributors? Like, things like that. And it's, you know, making it clear, like, how decisions get made, who has power, sort of back to the um, question about like, what does co-design look like? Like, what is the role? Who's making what decisions and how that gets made? Again, for those of you who are working in government, like some of that happens because of like the hierarchies in place or maybe like which agency is making a decision um, or paying for it or whatnot. But it can still be really good for that to be documented and clear um, so that the people who are participating in that process like know what their like agency is. Right, like, can they? Um, like, who is who's going to keep this going after whatever is happening right now? Right, like, if something needs to change, who does that get taken to? Um, where do my contributions go? Right, and how does that play in? So, I think that uh, a a great place is starting by making it explicit, um, and then and to sort of think about how do you shift that more towards um, a co-designer participatory model, like. How can you give the community more power or how can you give the, the people who are sort of driving that process um, more power in that process or like keep yourselves accountable to what you're promising? So, you know, if you're agreeing to do transparency reporting on a quarterly basis, like what happens when you don't, right? I think a lot of times when we talk about this, we don't always think about, um, a great example of this is codes of conduct. A lot of people spend time developing a code of conduct and publishing a code of conduct, but they never have a plan for like, what happens when the code of conduct is violated. And so the first time it's violated, there's like suddenly a scramble to make a committee that's gonna respond, <laughs> right? And, um, and everyone ends up being so frantic that they don't have a process or a structure to actually say what's probably the right thing, which is, whoo, slow down, take a breath. Like, what do we do about, you know, what's our process for this? So like, what are the ways that we hold ourselves accountable to the structures that we use to govern the groups that we're working in, whether it's a code of conduct and, you know, follow-ups of what happens when someone um, is offended or like has a harassment thing that they bring up, right? Because those things are going to happen. So as long as we know how we're going to handle them or 
how we might make a decision. Um, that's, that's sort of, those are good models, right? So thinking about actually the implementation or working through the, the risk scenarios of when things go wrong, um, I think are really helpful. But documenting explicitly, sharing that openly, um, and having thinking through those scenarios are really good structures. Yeah, and I guess another thing I would add to that is just, especially the things like inclusion and equity and racism and sexism, like holding yourself to the outcomes more so than to the attempt. And like, I feel like I, this happens a lot where, you know, there'll be a group that is, you know, predominantly like white or male or whatever, like, or cis and people sort of like express like, well, we invited them and they didn't come. So what can we do? And kind of move on from that. And just not moving on from that and saying like, okay, well, maybe there's something deeply that needs to change about how we're organized or where we hold these meetings or what we're focusing our work on or how we're sending out the invitations and basically like being willing to change as many things as possible until you have an equitable organization or whatever it is that you set out to do, even if that is difficult. Well, it is, I mean, I think it's about accountability. Like, I think always sort of asking yourself, like, is this, um, once you've been able to name it explicitly and document it, like, what needs to change for us to be meeting our goals, right? If one of the things we want to be held accountable to is um, a representative decision-making body, right? Or like some form of that, um, do we have that? What would need to change? Um, what, what work do we need to do to make that possible, right? which maybe isn't just like seeing who responds to the call. It's like doing directed outreach um, to find out like what's not working about this or like what would need to, to change and engaging the people you're trying to reach about why it doesn't work for them. Right. It could be as simple as like, well, the meetings are at a time that don't work for me because I have a standing community meeting, so I can't show up on Thursday nights. Right. <laughs> um, or it could be like, I don't want to be on a committee that is, a bunch of people who are very different from me. So how do we make this something that I feel welcome at? Georgia, you were talking about um, like, yeah, a lot of people in this space were recognizing it's not technology, it's, it's a policy change that's needed. Mm -hmm. And it, it's implied and I've, you know, I've skimmed through this, I've read the executive summary, I haven't uh, read it in detail. I keep meaning to read long form things and it just never happens. It's long, um, yeah. There's, there's that implied idea that a lot of folks don't necessarily um, are, are here for, you know, values around social justice, not, you know, technology, certainly not what leads them. Um, did you get a lot of concrete examples, perhaps, of the idea where people were using technology to, like, support and make it easier to make that policy change? The thing that comes to mind for me is this is sort of the split between, like, things that are framed under civic tech that I think have really driven from technology and open data sets and a lot of that like open data movement um, where I think there's always sort of been this driving force of we have all this information and resources. How can we make it help us better, right? Like how can we actually leverage the assets we have better? That's sort of been, to me, that's one of the fundamental pieces in civic tech. So the policy thing hasn't been there yet because we were still actually just trying to figure out like what we know and what we could do more with, right? Like, um, a lot of the first like civic tech projects were all open transit data. And those projects are, I mean, it's great. Part of that is like the transportation fields has more structured data that was easy to open and 
maybe less political to open, right? So it was easier to get those things going first. And so we saw a lot of those projects first. Um, and I think, uh, I, so I think in starting from the projects that started more in that field, you see them hitting policy later because they started working on the problems that are more rooted in policy issues, maybe in like a later wave, if that makes sense. Um, I think where we've seen stuff that, depending on how you frame it, if you look more at things like um, media justice work or um, uh, digital divide work, like access work, um, that's where like actually a lot of the community efforts and initiatives and technology that's been built for mobilization of campaigns towards policy, like has come from a very different frame and path, if that makes sense. So I, I would, it's sort of like there's things that have been I would almost group things as there's things that have been built in pursuit of policy change versus things that have been um, kind of like leveraging public goods more effectively. And um, I think we're starting to see that like crossover as we're digging into the harder, as people are willing to work on the more political and harder problems. Um, I feel like I've seen it lately as sort of like this group, as we hit like the five-year mark, it's kind of where we all end up. Like the project I'm leading right now is, um, it's a automates eligibility verification for seniors mm -hmm. and the state, what the state would like to do is get all these transit providers to switch to age 65. And so they're, but transit providers refuse to have that conversation. The boards refuse to talk about policy changes. And so what we're just doing is like, if you want the code, we are only offering it for this one policy definition. We won't support your, like, there's like 16 different versions of senior throughout 340 mm -hmm. transit agencies. And so it's kind of this opposite thing where like a lot of the tools we're developing right now in transportation is we're also trying to get people to switch to fair capping, but in our like 40 page feasibility study, we never use the phrase fair capping, but like that's the major driving force between all of this is like we're prioritizing our partners based on who's willing to accept fair capping and that's all based in like equity. Yeah. 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 Um, I think, yeah, I think we're starting to see it more. I don't, um, there are a bunch of, I know there are some stories in the report and that are on the website that um, talk about it, but I, from my memory, it's more like things that are coming more from the media and access justice work um, uh, that are coming to mind at the moment. So sorry for not having a great example. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess I can also think of an example. Well, since this, this wasn't in the report, but since working on this, I started working at the Brooklyn Public Library on a credit ground fines and some of the like members of the board of the library were saying like, oh, why aren't people paying fines? Maybe it's hard to find on the website. Maybe people can't figure out where they can pay them. Or like maybe the usability is not good enough for paying fines. And it was just so hard for them to conceive that sometimes people don't have $15 or that that could go to something else. And so, <laughs> yeah, it's like occasionally the problem is it's hard to find out how to like, how to pay them in the interface. But a lot of the time it's, you know, if, if your child loses a book, it's like that money's gonna go to groceries this week. It's not gonna go to unblocking your library card. And so, I mean, that's leading to some policy changes as far as like a lot of libraries around the country are just getting rid of fines altogether because the only people that really impact are people who can't afford to pay them in the first place. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think um, 
one thing I'll add is, and then I know there are more questions, so we will keep going. But um, this is actually something not from the report, but something that I wrote about in my grad school thesis because I focused on open data for that. If anyone is interested, but I actually I was writing Code for America was really new at the time, and I wrote about it, and I was like, actually, to me, the biggest win that Code for America is doing in its design is they're forcing um, the the model at the time was that the city that participated had to put up part of the money. And so they actually had to work it into the budget, which made it really hard to cut next year, right? So one of their like weird theories of change that they were never super upfront about, but they were doing through their operational model. Um, I think a lot of this is uh, to Alyssa Black was the um, head of operations at the time. And I remember her telling me this and I was like, oh, this is kind of genius because rather than they basically worked it into the budget structure in a way that it um, made it more likely for the city to be willing to spend that money again the following year. Might be not in the same way, but it made it harder to cut, right? Because the half of a fellowship funding that they were putting up to match the funding that Code for America was bringing basically introduced a policy through the budget, if that makes sense. So it was a way to kind of um, to make that change more structural. Um, and I just always thought that was like a really fascinating thing that no one was talking about. <laughs> um, but I think it's sort of to the same, to the like fines example or the fair capping example, like how can you um, get people to um, try something different? Like if you frame it as a pilot, right? Like do people then realize that it works? And so you can keep this new financial structure that actually like becomes a massive equity shift, right? Um, can you like introduce a new concept on um, lightweight risk, like uh, the other example that comes to mind that, um, oh God, I'm forgetting his name right now, but it was, he used to be at the uh, Department of IT in New York and is now at Johns Hopkins, I think. Anyway, they um, changed the threshold for RFPs to be much lower, right? So that you could have smaller businesses responding to them, right? Like what are the ways that we can, um, what's the thing that's actually creating the barrier and like what's a way to get people to try something like, piloting a fair cap without calling it a fair cap that then allows that to prove the fact that it, it might change, but it's actually, you're still going to get enough money. <laughs> like this is still going to work. Like allowing those people for those extra five years is still going to be okay. Like they can still be included in that. Um, but is it that you need to pilot it first or is it that you need to like show it in the budget that it will work for them or just like give them another model? I don't know if that's helpful, but those are some other examples that come to mind. Corey and Ben both asked somewhat similar questions, so I wanted to get, uh, go to theirs. Corey had a good suggestion of combining them. So Corey, could you ask yours and then Ben ask yours and we'll take them together? Sure. Um, I'm just curious, uh, maybe we can move to the recommendations for a moment and do a little bit on, Ben's question is actually probably better first, but then mine more tactical as always, right? Georgia and Maya, we love our friends at Mozilla and Ford and um, whatever vision they had. Uh, but I'm curious, like, how much have they actually dog-fooded um, the work that they supported and, and are passing it along to others? Um, I think, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I was just kind of curious, like, which recommendations were the most radical um, or sort of just, like, beyond the edges of, like, current practice or acceptability? Uh, so first, it was... Um, pretty radical for us to include social justice work in this report at all. That was, um, that was met with some resistance. 
but we pushed it forward. <laughs> and uh, one of the biggest, I, I wanted to build on that and give the, and answer Corey's question. Um, one of the things that happened after this is actually Ford ended up renaming their, I'm not going to claim full credit for this. I think um, they would not like that, <laughs> but um, Ford's program that had been internet freedom. And they, I think they were thinking about renaming it public interest tech. They instead changed it to technology and society. Um, and that's partly because this report and this work helps them realize that the media justice and other things that were under internet freedom work that they had been funding was actually quite interlinked to this sort of focus on public interest tech that was um, that they are interested in trying to grow um, and seeing this sort of alignment with this concept of public interest law, which Ford Foundation helped to make happen um, back in the day. So uh, that's one thing that I know is definitely like how Ford has continued to run those programs and frame them and how they talk about the work. Um, what it has very much shifted uh, as a result of this work. So I think that's one thing. It's not like, oh, this total program design changed or like this funding thing changed, but like a lot of the way that they build narratives has changed. And I think that is, we're still seeing that like ripple out. Um, one thing I know that they're exploring, uh, and actually I think is um, one of the programs that they are now, now have in place is uh, actually a two-year fellowship program. So not, um, they're working with more international organizations and it's similar to the like open web fellows program which uh, Maya participated in and um, uh, is one of the programs in this space that they've made a much longer window of time and I think that also um, I, I think was influenced by some of what we were talking about where these like really short these like less than a year fellowships are really hard to be impactful and um, tend to leave what you know end up being more parachuting experiences than not so those are some things that I think we've seen change um, yeah, Maya, if you want to add to any yeah. other questions. I mean, to full disclosure, since this, I haven't been taking such a zoomed out view of the whole ecosystem. <laughs> like I've been just working on things at the Brooklyn Public Library mostly and some other projects, but so I have less visibility into it. But I have noticed things that have like come on my feed of like Code for America is, seems to be doing demographic survey pretty widely, um, right. which wasn't happening before and I think that, that was one of the recommendations was like actually especially for the biggest organizations in the space doing leading by yeah, doing demographic surveys even of volunteers especially volunteers um and then as far yeah and I've also noticed that in some of their job postings have specifically like wanted to prioritize people who have lived experiences with some of the systems that they're directly working with um so, you know, people who have received food stamps or people who have either a loved one incarcerated or have been incarcerated themselves. Um, and that seems really important. I don't know if it came from this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that one of the recommendations from the report was a lot around kind of shifting the perspective of how these kind of fellowship programs are designed as far as either bringing someone from the outside to come in for 10 months or a year to do all this work versus finding out who's already doing the work and has been for a while and is embedded in the community and has known, you know, has like intergenerational connections and then funding that or figuring out how they can get the tech skills that they need to level that up or basically just capacity building. And yeah, like starting with people who are already starting to do that work. 
yeah, so I don't know if that's the most radical recommendation. I think there's also the whole section on different models. Like, there's been a lot of focus on government agencies and NGOs and nonprofits, but so many, even the organizations that we partnered with weren't any of those and were either not incorporated or were um, cooperatives. Uh, and so just looking at like the variety of models and not necessarily assuming that it has to be a 501c3. Uh, I think for a lot of people through this report, we basically were able to say things that people were feeling and thinking. So I think um, part of what was, uh, and, and I think this is part of why it's had a bit of like a soft permeation, like just kind of flowing out into the space is um, people are like, yeah, and then they still have to do the work, right, to make those changes happen. But um, I think a lot of what I've seen is that that it has given a voice to concerns people already had. Um, and so even just being able to name those things, I know other folks have modeled research on the project. I know um, I've seen a bunch of places where people have built it into their syllabi for teaching, uh, which is cool. So it's, I think things like that, I'm hoping we continue to see it um, like Maya and I were talking about this the other day, we were like, oh yeah, this is all still stuff that we are working on every day. And that's good. I mean, it's also good. It would be good to feel like we had like one more, but I think as you all know, like these are, it's not like there's a, a checkpoint where you're done, right? This is about like changing how we work and um, doing that in an ongoing way. So I, that's sort of seeing it continue to permeate out, I think is a good sign. I, I wanted to follow up real quick on one of the points you made around um, that you made that case for um, including social justice work. Because um, I think one of the things that I was walking around yelling at my excited support for the report as I was reading it was um, the point that um, there are no shortcuts to justice work. And I think a lot of what we do is around tech modernization in government or innovation is that we kind of hope and think that technology or some, some of this work will give us this kind of shortcut to social justice. And I think like I'm constantly trying to push that we have a more justice and equity framing on our work in civic tech or the or, organization formerly known, community formerly known as civic tech um and that we i guess like i get a lot of pushback from people saying you know this is government like all government should be modernized and improved and all government should be just as good as my favorite company's app and i guess i'm curious how you can like what you did to, to push that and frame that if you have any thoughts on how we could yeah find so the the project started framed as um, baselining the public interest tech ecosystem. And so we did an initial set of interviews um, under that frame and everybody said, what is that? <laughs> and instead talked about like their frames and a lot of like justice and equity came up in that. And that was coming from folks working in government too. Um, and so we sort of reframed as we brought on the partners to help define like more questions and build out the research as the technology for social justice project. And it was interesting, I don't think, and my, can you uh, can check me on this, I don't think anyone was like, oh, I don't identify with that, so I don't want to talk to you. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, let's talk about technology and, um, and impact, right? Like, because there was something about that frame that more people, um, like, no one was saying, like, oh, that's not 
me, but they were like, oh, I can talk. I, yeah, I'm happy to talk about my experience. Um, much yeah. more than when we were doing the public interest tech baseline frame, people were like, that's not me. Right. Yeah. yeah. We definitely have people in government who said that, or said, exactly. I can't identify with that. Like I, we're yeah. definitely not allowed to use that framing. In our yeah. But they still were willing to talk to us. Right. Like that was, yeah. I think it was interesting. Like we were able to using that frame, we were able to prime a conversation to be able to talk about that more, even if people didn't, if they were like, well, that's not how I frame it. And, or I can't frame it that way. I can do this. Um, but when we were, yeah, I just think it's interesting. So, uh, we kind of just did it and yeah, it was met with some resistance, but we were like, don't worry, we're still going to talk to all the people you want us to talk to. <laughs> like, this is just, this is a thing that's come up. And so we want to make sure we talk about this and that that frame is clear. And we think it's important that it's clear because it's come up so much already in our initial, in our pilot round of interviews. Um, yeah. And that, I'm, I'm glad we did those. I think that was helpful for um, allowing us to shift and do the work the way we like in a more participatory way and with that like frame as part of the conversation. Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, one of the things that I think came out of this was that basically all of any way that you frame it is going to keep some people in and keep some people out. And for the, the organizations we were working with on the research team, social justice, I think was something that united us a lot more than something like public interest, which people more often were skeptical. And I think, and you know, what is a, like on some level government work is about equitable access, right? Like in modernizing, like a lot of that is about, um, in many cases that's about getting people the access they should have, or like making the systems work for the people the way they're supposed to, like um, maybe social justice isn't the frame, but like equity is definitely a centering point for people. Yeah. Um, I realized we didn't totally answer your question, Leah, but hopefully that was helpful. Yeah. Just tell me how to convince people to support equity and justice. That's all I wanted to know. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's about finding out how they how they talk about it, right? Like, what is the word for, what is it for them? Like, what is the, um, because uh, it's maybe just those words they aren't familiar with, right? Looks like Brendan had a good question. Brendan, do you, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait to dive in further to this report. I was just curious with uh, with COVID, unfortunately, a lot more people are having to apply for unemployment insurance or they're experiencing um, some of these processes that might not work as smoothly as, as they've liked and in the past have, have not really thought much about them. And I'm just curious how that might lead to um, more people demanding better services. And then also an opportunity to fold more people into, I don't know what to call this space. I don't want to uh, offend after learning all the different terms, but more into this movement of, of trying to improve things. Um, and I was just curious your, your thoughts on that. I feel like COVID is a nice equity opportunity <laughs> um, to be, to say one positive thing about uh, this pandemic situation. Um, yeah, uh, it's a great point. I think a lot of people, you know, suddenly a lot more people have to think about what it's like to be unemployed or what it's like to try and access government services or, yeah, it would be nice if a lot of that was going more smoothly. But I, I do think it is, I, I am optimistic that people 
we'll see. And I think the hard part here is really the narrative of the way these things are talked about and covered. But um, it's really clear to me, uh, sorry, not a, not a totally coherent thought, but let me step back and explain. Um, my organization, Simply Secure, actually a lot of my staff are based in Germany. And so it's been really clear to me <laughs> to what extent having social infrastructure has made a difference in this pandemic. Um, the way like just like Germany and Europe are able to respond because of the way their social infrastructure is uh, there for the people and business owners and the whole ecosystem um, in a way that like we don't really have uh, in the US. And so like how hard it is to navigate things like the PPP loan programs, um, the other like disaster relief programs, like the things that are, are there. Um, it's really just fascinating to me how stark the differences are when you already have those systems in place. I'm hoping that that's something that people see <laughs> and see that to change that we need to be willing to invest more in building those systems and that like we need things like um, universal healthcare <laughs> to <laughs> provide for people and we need like programs that work. Um, I think a lot of it's going to depend on how people tell those stories and how we sort of use these moments to explain that we could be making a difference on them. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm curious on universal basic income as that has an opportunity also as, as, because uh, people have seen simulations now with the $600 on. It's, it's unfortunately more familiar, but if there is a silver lining, maybe it's a way to discuss some of these things. Thank you so much. Yeah, I don't know, Maya, if you want to add it all, but that's definitely something I've been thinking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there definitely has been a lot broader support for these things where it just, it seems so absurd that, like, people are still expected to pay rent when a lot of people are not even allowed to work right now. Um, or, yeah, the introducing the idea of a universal basic income has also been a big piece. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as from my work at a public library, like, you know, like 30% of people in New York City don't have broadband at home. And a lot of those people, a lot of those people come to public libraries to access computers and Wi-Fi and to have access to devices and space and with libraries closed, that's not really an option. So figuring out how to yeah, like the Department of Education sent out tablets to a couple hundred thousand kids. Um, They've been still doing like mail distribution from the schools in a lot of cities, like um, making sure people get food. Because if you were on the, like free lunch programs, like I think that's been, I feel like people are hearing those stories. Yeah, sorry, Maya. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and so we're right now installing a bunch of like outdoor feeding and Wi-Fi hotspots for people who do have devices but maybe don't have the broadband capacity to support their whole family. But yeah. Yeah, Sarah mentioned Wi-Fi buses in the chat. I've There's been a bunch of stories I've heard in different cities of um, uh, the school buses that have Wi-Fi being deployed into places where we know like access is low. And um, I think that's a great, like, uh, again, these are the stories I hope people hear about. So we say like, oh, these are things we should be working on, right? And um, and making, and just like thinking more creatively about how we share and distribute resources so that we can address. Amy, are you still on? You had a good question here about mentorships. 
So my question is like, obviously throughout the report, um, I saw a lot of references to mentorships, especially in the practitioner experiences. I wanna hopefully, I mean like one of my biggest goals is to better understand how we can support underserved individuals with mentorships. Like communities tend to form frankly to me, like around middle-class and upper-class communities. Like they tend to have more access to groups through colleges or through the workplace they're in or just because they can afford to live in a city. Um, so I'm wondering if there are better recruiting methods available that were identified by your participants, um, specifically even getting in as early as the high school level, identifying sort of underserved communities and, and conducting better outreach on mentorships. I think one thing that we had been hoping to do as part of the project was actually um, enable some of the people, the partners to like go and give talks at their, like one of the things that came up was um, like even just being able to go and talk about what you do now to like the people you, where you went to college. Uh, like one of our participants who majored in English, but is now like a, a sysadmin DevOps person <laughs> was like, oh, I'd love to go and talk about why I do the work that I do, how I ended up in technology to like my English program um, to also just like get people understanding that there are what you're studying might not be what you end up doing, right? And there are ways to like develop skills outside of like the educational structures. So I I think um, that was one one idea in general that we were talking about was like enabling people to tell to tell their stories more, and that's like part of why on the website we publish profiles of a lot of the practitioners, like people who were open to it. We wanted to share more of their paths and stories because I think. Um, to your point, um, when it's framed as a starting place of a community or in like a professional framework, um, that may already start excluding people. But if we can start from a place of like personal experience, then people are have the potential to see something that they connect with and then maybe can see how that would affect their path um, or how they could be see themselves doing similar work, if that makes sense. Um, that was one of the reasons we tried to highlight people's personal stories and paths so that that was a way to like open those doors for people um since that was something that had come up in the interviews um i realize there's not like a structural answer to that but <laughs> i think one thing is like a, what can you know what are day-to-day -day things we can do we can talk to each other more about how we got here and who helped us and what was helpful you know like we can tell those stories more to each other and then some of those men those relationships and mentorship relationships can evolve from those conversations in maybe ways that don't have to be as um, formally structured. That's like a, a thing that we can be doing every day. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to think about other examples. That's like one thing that I remember being a big portion of how we wanted to approach presenting the work. Yeah, and big shout out to Georgia for being an incredible mentor for many years of my life now. <laughs> and just ongoing, like truly, has linked me with so many organizations and people and to this day and also this particular talk that we're at right now but um but yeah i guess one takeaway is that i don't know i kind of wish we had made this like framed it a little bit differently in the report is that there's both so many people came in through these ad hoc networks and just knowing somebody and um and having like a mentor who hooked them up with some opportunity but a lot of the times, yeah, like a 
Amy, like as you mentioned, a lot of that's inequitable. It's people who have already access to money and connections or went to school in the right places. And like being aware of that and saying, okay, I have an opportunity and I know there of a job or I know of an of a grant or something and being conscious about who you're telling about that and like specifically you know knowing people who aren't going to always have access to those opportunities and to share those and be a mentor to people who aren't going to you know maybe benefit you so much but who might be like the next person coming up and who we need in the space um so there is also i think the structural issue of not being so elitist and yeah um, like flattening it more but also like personally always looking who's coming up after you and being a yeah. I I totally agree with the struggle that it's it's very difficult to find a systemic way of addressing this problem and that's why I asked because I hope that you were just both smarter than me and like had figured this out already and it's totally cool that you didn't um but uh like I look at it from that same perspective. Like I got very lucky. I met certain mentors along the way um, who saw something in me and said, okay, I'll try to give you a leg up. Um, It sucks that it's for some people, especially for certain types of communities that again, don't have access to a lot of these like people in positions of power already, like that it's just, it's a bit of a luck game for them, whether they get noticed or not. And I think that's, that's what I'm trying to solve for. And I think, I don't know, like I I touched upon this idea of like high schools, like I think it would be weird if I just reached out to a random high school in DC and was like, hey, I'd like to come talk about how like it was, you know, not a standard career path for me to get into this space into public interest tech. But like, I'm just, I guess this is something like, hopefully it's something that you can identify in future, um, you know, user stories um, in interviews with participants is like, ways in which they were able to reach out to groups that they weren't already connected to. I think that's, that's where I'm trying to bridge the gap. Yeah. One thing I will add is um, I'm also, I've been an advisor on the tech Congress fellowship program since it started, which I think folks might be familiar with and, um, or the congressional innovation fellowship is I guess the other way it's framed. Uh, one of the programs that Travis Moore has built in there that's actually been really successful is the, um, like recommend some of the sponsor, someone else to nominate someone to apply. Um, that has actually led to, and offering financial incentives for when those people like for those, um, nominations that has actually been really successful and has led to some of the people getting like some of the fellows themselves have come in that way. Like people who didn't think that they didn't know about the program or wouldn't have thought to apply um, that nomination, basically like incentivizing people to nominate diverse applicants has been really um, effective as a program. And I think Travis has some blog posts about that. So I would like for an example of a structured program and how they built it, um, you know, paying for that, uh, offering incentives to um, get people to help you do that labor, I think has been an effective model. Unfortunately, blanking on the name of the program right now is out of Detroit, like Detroit Future Schools. That one, I think it was one of the other ones named Detroit Future Schools. But I there was a model they had like an orange like publication about it. But basically, it was like a tech and media training program that the way that they selected people to participate was people who of all ages who had were leaders in their own community, whatever that community might be, and like prioritizing people who 
are going to be able to bring those skills back into like an existing community and maybe be mentors themselves or who already have those deep community connections. So even just like prioritizing that and who you're bringing on in the first place, I think is a good place to start, which is, yeah. The other model that um, that reminds me of is the Mozilla Open Leaders Program. Um, and uh, Abby, who um, leads that program, has a couple talks about this, like the scaling model that is the way they designed the Leaders Program, which was the idea that everyone who is a part of it would, many of them would move on to um, become like mentors in the following year. So there was this like building program that helped expand the network organically and actually like a lot of what people were, I mean, people are learning about how to lead open projects, but they're also learning about how to then pass on that mentorship and that can then evolve yeah. itself in a really effective way. Um, yeah. From personal experience, like that's an amazing program that I joined as like basically a participant and have someone mentor me on my projects. And then I think more than half of the people who participate the next season of it come around and mentor other people. So yeah. Yeah, it's a real, it's a really excellent program, and they have a there's like a textbook on how to do like they've published all of it openly about how to run a similar program. Um, Mozilla is not driving it themselves anymore, but this year there's a like a lot of Open Leaders X programs. But I think it's a great model for how to um, scale. Like it's basically a leadership program, but about working sort of built around the concept of working in the open. That's great. My question is about um, the fifth recommendation that you guys make, the last one about, um, yeah, we know all of these organizations that, you know, come to mind, but um, you called out co-ops and collectives and um, networks that are doing really innovative stuff, but they're not talked about very often. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about them, if they'd be cool with you sharing, I, I kind of just want you to give me a list of them so I can reach out to them and and talk to them but but I'll let you answer how how you want so I, I just want to know who they are and I want to be their friends yeah um, I one of the things that I really wish that we had managed to pull into the report is there are a bunch of resources and there are more now than there were at the time but about starting co-ops there's a bunch of now like incubators for people to set up co-ops so like there's a whole Brought, I think there's way more of a narrative around this than there was even the two years ago. Um, but I really wanted to try and have us have more data about the like co-op movement in the report. And we just didn't get it in time for publishing. Um, but I think I totally have a link in my email that I can send you later. Um, there are, there's a bunch of, um, there are some organizations that specifically organize and support co-ops. And so they have like lists, there are lists and like, I can get you access to, we can find the list and get them to you. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I mean, Maya talked about this earlier. Um, I, I, a lot of this was coming from a place of people just understanding other models. And to some extent, this is even just like other models of governance, uh, right? Like collectives and cooperatives are just, people choosing to have a more value-centric governance model to their entity. In many cases, they're still using an entity status that might be a traditional nonprofit framing, depending on what's possible in the state that they're in and whatnot. But um, it's about having a different value structure to how you run your organization. And so I think it was 
I learned a ton <laughs> just like hearing more about that and being like, oh yeah, you could run this totally differently. Like why do we think it has to be this way? Um, but one of the other things I, I remember taking away from that was there are actually a lot of structural barriers around, this is something I run into being a non-founder of a nonprofit, but a female ED. I'm not eligible for any women founder programs, right? Like, there's these weird restrictions we put on things, which side note, that's where a lot of the funding goes into like women led organizations. It's into things that are specifically founder framed or specifically small business framed or specifically like nonprofit framed. And I think one of the, like my big thoughts coming out of this is just like, how can we be more inclusive by actually like calling attention to those organizations, like co-ops, collectives, like alternatively structured entities, like, um, you know, women-led organizations or like, uh, you know, maybe you're not the founder, but like you're in this role. Like how can we actually make that a, um, not an exclusionary frame, but something that's broader? Because a lot of, uh, a lot of co-ops might not be eligible for some of the programs that we're talking about because of their entity structure being one thing and not another, right? So how can we make that um, just not a place where we're excluding people and instead like uh, an opening to alternative structures? All right. Well, I think we're towards the end. Thank you so, so much for all your time, um, energy, answering all of our complicated questions. And um, is there anything you want to say before we close out? Look outside of technology for inspiration to give credit to more people than just engineers or people we typically think of as tech workers to, yeah, form an intergenerational network of contacts and and yeah like support each other and like give credit to people who are older than you and people who are younger than you is all i would say yeah i will plus a million that um and say like one of the things that i have one way i've tried to act that like enable put that into my day-to-day work going forward is um i've been trying to push a narrative around thinking about everybody as contributors, like including the people who are you're interviewing, like they are giving input into a project. So how do you value that contribution? How do you make sure that they know that contribution is valued, that they are helping shape where that direction of that work? Um, and I think that's, you know, that really, like if you rethink about how everyone in the project is contributing and giving them credit for those contributions, um, you count a lot more people and what it takes to get something done. Uh, and you're able to sort of see that in a way that shifts the power narrative away from like the builders to like all of us as contributors. Um, and so I think that just to the give everybody credit, like, yeah, how can you, um, how can you take, how can you make space to name the work it actually took and like everyone who was involved in a way that, they're comfortable with being named, but um, to recognize everyone as contributors in a project, I think is really important. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at Civic Tech Chat. You can find us online at civictech.chat or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And one quick shameless plug, we love and appreciate your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. They help us reach more folks. Thank you.